0: Good morning, good morning. morning. Let's play a game, all right. Which kind of person are you more like? I'll give you two categories, a poverty person or a prosperous person. Now, a couple things I gotta make sure we're all crystal clear on, number one, this is not about how much money you have. Is this about how much money you have? The answer is No. no, you could be filthy rich and be a poverty person. And you can be broke as a joke and be a prosperous person, okay? So I want to make that clear. Number two, I want to make this clear. When we talk about the prosperous person, I am not talking about the prosperity gospel. Can you all say boo? (laughs) Right? So the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that teaches that God's will for you is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you are not, then you are sinning somewhere in your life. This is not what we're talking about. I just want to ask you, are you a poverty person, or are you more like a prosperous person? So let me break down um, some stats for you. 69% of Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank. Just pause on that. 69% of all Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank. And some of you are like, I think I already know which one I am. And then some of you are thinking to yourself, how is that even humanly possible? Um, Of those making over $100,000 a year, 25% live paycheck to paycheck, and the vast majority actually have no savings or retirement. For some of you, you're thinking to yourself, how could I plausibly make over $100,000 a year and not have savings and not have a retirement? While some of you in this room, you're like, yep, totally got that one down. (laughs) Understand how that works, okay? Uh, The stats on this are just unbelievable. Uh, the majority of people in this room, Christians as well, live paycheck to paycheck, don't have a savings, have very small margins for actual generosity. And uh, so I want to talk about pro- poverty people. Let's see if you're there. Poverty people are driven primarily by impulse and or a lack of training. So basically they say two, two main things. If I have it, I can spend it. And likely If I can spend it, I deserve it. Number two, they're going to say credit card debt is necessary and acceptable. So let me phrase it to you this way. If you have a son or daughter in your home, and you don't teach them any principles about money, American culture teaches a poverty mindset. It teaches people to spend everything they have, and then maybe if they feel generous at the end and there's anything left over, then plausibly maybe they'll be able to give something away. Uh, So if your kids are growing up and you're not teaching this to them and you're just modeling it to them, here's what I can tell you. Your kids will grow up with a poverty mindset even if they make six figures and above. Now, Poverty mindset people have a different view on debt. They believe debt is normal, it is acceptable, even though the banking industry charges exorbitant amounts of money, and the very existence of credit cards that aren't paid off is an indicator that we are living beyond our means. Now, if you have a poverty mindset, that has never bothered you, and you probably have not seen that as a source of a major problem in your life. Poverty people do not meticulously stick to a budget if you're a poverty person and you're thinking about a budget, you may be thinking about the budget you made last year or a couple of years ago that maybe every other month informs the decision you make. Poverty people don't stick meticulously to a budget. Um, they spend their money, and they wonder, where did it go? Why don't I have anything left? The whole point of a budget is to intentionally tell something where to go. As we think about legacies, we want you to think about your legacy like a budget. We want you to tell your legacy where to go, rather than haphazardly, randomly, with a blindfold, shooting a shotgun, and hoping you hit a target 300 feet away, right? It's not going to happen. So when we think about this stuff, I want you to understand that poverty people don't prioritize correctly their income. Here's how a poverty person thinks about the prioritization of their income. Number one, they say uh, standard of living first. And in this, in the new American concept is eating out entertainment, and more stuff. This is first. You get money in. My first obligation is to my impulses and my needs and my status. If that is you, you're likely on the poverty side of the spectrum. Number two, bills. Um, I have credit card bills or these bills. I have all these bills. I've got to pay them off. Cross our fingers that after my eating out budget, I have enough money to actually pay off all my bills, which are usually prolonged credit card bills that are accruing unusual amounts of interest. Number three, guilt generosity. You'll go to church and the pastor will preach a sermon on giving and you'll be like, ah, oh, shoot, <laughs> i supposed to do something like that. And so you manage to pull out under 1% of your income to give generously to a nonprofit or your local church or a need that is genuine and real in your life. Number three, savings not a chance. You know you're a poverty person when savings is not a priority, but it's a happy accident if by chance you did not indulge all your pleasures for that month. And number whatever this is, 35, no retirement. Um, Retirement is a discussion that is not on the mind of a poverty person, okay? Now, you may read this and say, there's some of me here, I'm not all this, right? What we found is that most people are on one of two trajectories. They're either moving toward deeper poverty, or they're moving towards a more prosperous route. Now again, do I mean prosperity gospel? Say no. No. Good. All right. So um, poverty people, I want you to understand their financial legacy. Their children range from stingy, or you may see this manifest in extreme situations like hoarding, and they control and hoard their money because it gives them a sense of control. Okay? Um, now, the unfortunate part of this is that this is not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live uh, with extreme, irrational, unusual generosity. And as long as you are controlling everything, and so sometimes poverty people, they grew up in a home, they don't want to ever be in that situation again, so they hoard. The other end is they're just impulsive. What we find is that from one generation to the next, usually the sins of the fathers are passed down times two Unless you're Solomon, Solomon t- had, a, had a, an ability to multiply his father's sins by 100. David had, we'll say, ten, eight concubines and wives, and, and Solomon had a 1,000, right? It's just crazy what Solomon did. But what you see is that if you live like a poverty person, your child is going to do one of two things. They're either going to react through hoarding and stinginess, Or what they're going to do is give themselves over to the impulses of their heart. They're going to see mom and dad bought whatever they wanted. Therefore, I will buy whatever I want. Not realizing that it is completely taking away all capacity for extreme and irrational generosity later. Now, let's talk about prosperous people. Uh, My hope is that the majority of you in this room, maybe you've grown up in a poverty concept. Maybe you've been living that. But my hope is that you're tilting your life in the other direction, maybe, and that you are going towards a prosperous direction in terms of your stuff. You are driven not by impulses, but by wisdom and by training. And here's why I write that. Nobody comes out of the womb smart when it comes to budgeting money, Okay. Um, you, in this culture, because of the weight and the pull of the lies of American poverty training in terms of money and credit cards and debt, et cetera, you must, in this culture, be trained to think differently. Otherwise, you will default to poverty thinking. And so moms and dads who train their children on how to budget and to save and to do different things and prioritize will find that their kids will automatically have all the resources for successful thinking about money and generosity, now you can't control them, but you can at least set them up. Um, prosperous people say this, I will prepare for the future. Uh, for some of you, this is a no, duh, but I want to be really clear. The future is a petrifying subject for many people, and they think like poverty people because they can't bear to look at the what-ifs of the future. Um, whether or not you are broke or filthy rich, prosperous people think about the future, and they realize that every decision I make in terms of my money will affect my future self. I am borrowing or giving to my future self. Uh, Prosperous people have a natural understanding of the implications of their money. Prosperous people will say this, credit card debt ruins my ambitions and my future generosity. So I grew up in a home where I shared this last week with you, my mom, uh, as early as I could remember, would tell me, don't ever go on credit card debt. Michael, don't ever go on credit card debt. Michael, Michael, don't, we'd be driving randomly. She's like, hey, don't ever go on credit card debt. Don't ever go in." credit, I'm like, got it, mom. Heard this thing hundreds and hundreds of times growing up. And her intentionality formed and shaped me because earlier in their marriage, they got into credit card debt. And you know what it did? It stole their ambitions. It stole their capacity for generosity. It stole their future plans for their life. And they spent so much time and money trying to get out of their credit card debt. So when I grew up, I realized like, I, for me to open up my first credit card account felt like I was sinning. I felt like this worst thing ever. So I decided to do, because I have some measure of self-control with finances, I said, you know what? I'm just gonna give them back to the bank and I'm going to take their points and their money back and I'm gonna pay them off every month. Ha, get you a bank, ha. Um, but... Very few people can actually handle a credit card. Why? Because they are driven by their impulses and not by their principles. They are driven by their entitlement and not by their training. And so again, it's one of these things where you gotta just ask yourself, uh, am I a prosperous person by nature, the decisions I make, or am I a poverty person? Uh, Credit card debt ruins my ambitions. Uh, Prosperous people do some really strategic things. They budget, I know it's like a curse word for some of you, right? They budget. They are intentional. They tell their money to go so that at the end of the month, they know exactly where their money went. The majority of Americans do this. They spend, 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 and then they get to the end of the month, and they say, how come I don't have any money? Where did it go? So we put people through mint.com. We'll make them go back with their spouse over a year and go through their entire budget, and we'll say, okay, now you have not intentionally been spending money. You just, you've just been haphazardly spending your money. So they go through Mint, they assign all the categories, and they are blown away to find out not just the hundreds of dollars that have been misappropriated, but the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. It's actually an incredible experience to watch people, to sit down with them, face their spending habits, and they will say, this almost always happens, how much money do you think you spend on eating out? Maybe 150 a month. Then we pull up their restaurant bills for the last three months, and it is not unusual that they spend between $700 and $1,000 a month. One couple we sat with, it was $1,000 a month, and that wasn't even his future wife's money that she was spending. She was at $600 a month, and their joint income was under $50,000 a year, right? They had to face the reality Of their habits and impulses. And if you asked them, what would they have said? 150 bucks, maybe 200 in a bad month, right? Because this is the nature of how we are so easily deceived. We nickel and dime, we don't think. If you don't budget. So here's what happens Uh, prosperous people, always on the top end of their budget, they put generous giving. Now, if you think for a moment that The church just wants my money. Then don't give it to Village Church. Give it to any other kingdom-building organization. My biggest concern for you is not whether or not you give to Village Church. It is that you are an irrationally generous giver with your time and your stuff and your energy. That's all I want for you. If you think we want your stuff, give give it to someplace else. I don't care. But prosperous people prioritize irrational generosity first. Then they put aside savings. For some of you, you're like, Michael, like, literally, I could pull up a website and read budgeting principles. I'm telling you, 69% of Americans, this is crazy talk, right? What I'm telling you is that in the church, it's not that much different. What I'm telling you is that when we do financial counseling with people, I am blown away, and it's not just young people or old people, it's everybody. And so when I get up and say stuff like this, they're like, yeah, you know, I already know that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you might, but guess what? About 70% of the church doesn't. Retiring... <laughs> like that's that's not even feasible and then there's the standard of living. My standard of living is is determined after my standard of giving, after my savings, after my retirement, and then I build a life for myself and my family. But what I want to do at the end of my budget is leave margin. I leave margin not just for the what-ifs, but I leave margin for irrational and random generosity. All the opportunities that come up, Pastor Tim gets up and says, "Um, hey, there's going to be a mission trip. We need $8,000. And some of you are like, hey, it's the end of the month. I've got 300 300 bucks a month left over for random generosity. Text to give, text 77977 to Village Church, and, and you, know, you can do that in five seconds. For some of you, that's a no-brainer. But the ability for you to do that is because you think like a prosperous person. You don't think like a poverty person. Poverty people spend it now. Prosperous people think about the future. Now, as I say this, Some of you, we could just end now, and you're like, I've got some serious repentance to do. Some of you are wondering, why are you talking about this? Because, I want you to hear this. um, At the end of the sermon, we're gonna bring all this together for you, but you need to figure out which trajectory you're on. Because if you are going to leave a godly financial legacy from generation to generation, you have to get out of the poverty mindset and teach your children how to live a prosperous mindset so you can be rich, say no, no so you can be crazy generous so you can be crazy generous number number one, you're not going to be able to leave the legacy you want. And number two, you're not going to be able to do what God's asked you to do if you're not handling his resources the way he tells you to do it. So uh, I want to set this up for you. If you're new with us, we're uh, in the fourth week of a five-week series on legacy. So we're going to talk about financial legacy today. I'd like to define the terms legacy for you so you can be on the same page with us. Um, A legacy is two things. Number one, a legacy is the dominant narrative or story of your life. So when you die and your family's gets together and it's Christmas or it's Thanksgiving or Easter, having a big meal and your name comes up, the stories that are told about you, this becomes your your legacy. This is a part of it. And unfortunately, your legacy is told by the people who tell your stories. And if they don't like you, well, (laughs) you have a terrible legacy. But there's a second part of your legacy that we have a little bit more control over. And the second part of our legacy is the lasting impact of your life on another soul. Um, this is the lasting impact primarily by the way that you're gonna have on your children and your grandchildren. This is where that legacy is the most powerful. You can influence their lives unlike nobody else in this entire world. And so what we have been asking you to do is to prayerfully think about the legacy that you are leaving. And we want to train and equip you to leave a godly legacy as it relates to different aspects of our life. Today though is about money. Two ingredients to a godly legacy. Number one, intentionality. Godly legacies never, ever happen on accident. If you don't tell and budget your legacy and tell it where to go, it will be random and haphazard, and you will not leave a godly legacy for the next generation. Number two, a godly legacy requires long-term obedience. It requires you to rethink your life and to say, from this point on, I'm going to live for the future I'm not just gonna spend everything I have, but I'm gonna actually think about those coming after me and how I can give to them godly wisdom and show them how to invest into God's kingdom with their life. So point number one in your notes, uh, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 25. We'll start in verse 14. So open up your Bibles there. Point number one in your notes is this. I am activated to grow God's kingdom right now. I am activated to grow God's kingdom right now. It reminds me of like a robot, right? Many Christians are like robots with no batteries. And I just wanna like plug you into the wall and activate you and get you moving and do what you're supposed to be doing. And I want you to notice if you're a believer right now, as it pertains to your money, as it pertains to your life, you have been activated by God to grow his kingdom. And so what's gonna happen is we're gonna use a parable that Jesus tells, it's in a series of parables that is preparing the disciples and God's people, how to live when Jesus goes away. So Jesus is on Earth, and you know the story: He's going to die, raised from the dead, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. What the disciples don't fully grasp yet is that there is about to be an enormous change in the way God relates to his people. What's going to happen with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that God is going to move from a old covenant to a new covenant, that no longer will all the laws that Israel had to obey, no longer will this be what God expects of people. There will be a new law, a new covenant that will be for anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. And so here's what's happening. Jesus in his teachings, he's teaching people how to live according to the new covenant. He's teaching people how to live, not according to the old covenant, but he's teaching them how to live in this new era of the church. And so what we find in this text is we'll start in Matthew 25, 14. It says this, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So in a parable, um, each of the subjects and objects, they have an, an analogy. Okay, They have something that they pertain to. So the word it here um, is about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is telling a parable about the kingdom of God. Here's a kingdom ethic. Here's how you live in the kingdom of God. Um, you otherwise are not going to know this, so I have to teach you. Here's basically how to be a Christian um, under the reign of Jesus. Okay, And so it is the kingdom of God. The master here um, is going to be, or the man, who you'll see is the master, is going to be Jesus. He is filthy, filthy, filthy rich. This guy is loaded. Now, this guy it has servants, and the servants are Christians, okay? That's, that's, that's who they are. So when you look at the servants, you think people who are followers of Christ. Now, the man is going to go on a journey, and the journey in our language is the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to leave, and he's going to leave the church on earth to grow his kingdom, to grow his, we'll just say, uh, wealth, okay? And the journey means basically, hey guys, I'm going to go away, I'm going to leave you here, and here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. Now we get to the property. The property, we're going to unfold this in a little bit, Um, It is the master's property, and he is going to give very specific things to each one of these servants. And these servants are going to have a responsibility to take the master's stuff and to do something with it. Most importantly, they're going to grow the master's kingdom or empire. That's their job. So it says in verse 14, it will be the kingdom of God will be like a man, metaphorically Jesus, going on a journey, the ascension, who called his servants Christians and they entrusted to him this property. To one, in verse 15, it says he gave five talents to another two, to another one. So what is a talent literally? This is, I think, striking. One talent is roughly 75 pounds. It's a unit of measure. And if you were to take today's wages, this would be about 2.1 million dollars. So many people, when they hear the story of the talents, they're like, what do you mean I got one talent? No fair, he got five, right? Not the case. This is a lot of money. So the average male salary in the city of Bartlett is $66,000 a year. So that's how we base this number in the city. we trying to make it Bartlett relevant, right? But really, this is what it comes down to. The average salary for a guy over a course of time, 32 years, um, this is how much money one talent would have been in today's wages on average. So was this a small amount of money? No. And if you receive $2.1 million dollars, to invest into the master's plan, right? Is this like a small thing to steward? No, this is actually really significant. So I wonder, how, how, did, he, how did he decide who to give five talents to, which is $10.5 million, or two talents, which is $4.2 million. Make sure I did that math right, by the way. Um, to eat, yes, did I get good? Thank you. Last service, I, was, I had to guess, so I wrote it down. Um, he goes on, he says, to each... According to his ability, then he went away. Here's what the master did. The master didn't just randomly pull out numbers. The master has been watching, and the master has been discerning. And he gave to each one what he knew they were capable of stewarding well. Now, many of you know how the story pans out, but just pause for a moment. Did the five-talent guy have the capacity to steward this money well? Yes. And the two talent? Yes. And the one talent? Yes. These men had already proven a bit of success in their life to the point where they were uniquely called on his journey and said, we're going to give you a responsibility and your job is to steward this. So now, I want to make something very clear for you. I want to make it clear what a talent actually is in God's kingdom. Um, Because you're going to hear the word talent, and you're going to be tempted to hear me, like a skill or something I'm good at. I'm good at playing piano or singing, like I'm talented. Not the case, not how I'm going to use the word. I'm going to use the word to refer to four main things that God himself, his property, his things that he gives us to steward or be responsible for, to use with the intention to grow his kingdom. Money, skills, stuff, and experience. These are four things that God has given or permitted in your life. And every one of these things was given to you, not so that you could be a bum, but so that you could invest it and grow God's kingdom. You might be wondering, why did God give me this set of experiences so you could invest it? Why did God give me this money so you could invest it? Why did God give me these skills so you could invest it? Why did God give me all this stuff so you could grow God's kingdom? Phil Church, imagine if every person in this church activated their money, got out of poverty mindset, actually started living according to biblical principles, and thought biblically about their money, and their skills, and their stuff, and their experience, and began praying, God, would you help me be faithful with a little bit, so I could be faithful with more? I mean, what would happen? The reality is, we're going to see what happens to many Christians in this context. And so the text goes on, verse 16, he who had received five talents, he went at once, and he traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, he went and he dug into the ground and he hid his master's money. Let's look at the five-talent guy. What did he do at once? He went, I mean, the master's gone. And at once he goes and trades. Like, I'll be honest, this guy's pretty shrewd because somebody lost money in this trade, right? And, uh, but at once he goes and he doubles his money. And then who also goes at once? The guy with two talents, $4.2 million. He goes, and at once, he makes two more talents. He invests them. He figures out something to do. But now we got this guy, and this is the guy that's so frustrating. Because this guy, he goes out, and he digs a hole right away. He throws all the money in the pit, covers it up, and just waits. Now, um, we're going to unfold this guy's motivations here. But right now, here's what, here's what Jesus wants you to feel. Frustration and confusion. Because this guy has the capacity to double the money like the other ones, but he doesn't. He has the ability. He has shown himself worthy and capable. So like, what is going on in this otherwise capable man's heart that he has proven himself to this point worthy. And now he is actually given this opportunity. He buckles under under the pressure. What's happening inside him? So I wanna ask one more question. What should I be spending his talents on? Uh, I wanna give you a really helpful paradigm. I think it's very valuable. This is a paradigm that I use to filter politics. It's a a paradigm that I use to filter my views on money. Uh, investments, et cetera. And so the question is this, what should I spend his talents on? Uh, what you find is that the master in the story has very specific values. He wants his kingdom, his empire, and his wealth to grow. That's one of the primary motivations we see so far with the master. And when we ask ourselves, okay, God wants to grow his kingdom, what are the things that grow God's kingdom? And I'll tell you, when you open up scripture, there are four things that really, really move God emotionally. Uh, There are four things that really like, you you mess with these, you anger God, and when you do these things, you please God. And these four things are very simple, the lost, the least, the family, and the church. And so people often say, Michael, what's your political persuasion? I would say, it depends on the candidate. Uh, I want to vote for somebody who, who, promotes things that are the dearest and nearest to God's heart. That's it. If it's a Democrat, independent, Republican, whatever. So you think about the lost. Um, I want to make sure the church is continually able to be mobilized to bring the gospel. I don't really think politics has a huge say in that. Um, and so for me, like that's just my priority for the church. How I think about investing my money, though, would be missionaries, short-term mission projects. Here's what I know. There is a bunch of missionaries in Haiti. We're about to send a team of guys over to love them and to serve them and give the resources they need. I'm going to pull out my phone, and I'm going to text to give that, because that is a value that is close to God. Missionaries in the mission field giving up their lives life, giving up their comfort, living in a country that's honestly a little bit crazy at times, um, more so than America, believe it or not. And uh, amen to anyone who's ever been to Haiti. Like, to me, like, that's, that's like something that's near and dear to God's heart. You know, you give five bucks, 10 bucks, a thousand, I don't care. Like, that's what makes God happy, right? You think about the least. You think about the unborn. I mean, to me, does it get more least than that? I mean, again, don't take this as a political anything. When you think about anything from the unborn to refugees to the poor, like, these things are near and dear to God's heart. Now, there's the way the church deals with it, and there's the way America deals with it. I'm not saying the two are the same, but I'm saying in the church, these are things that are precious to God. And when I think about investment, My life or my money or my energy. I want to support getting women out of the sex slave industry because it's vile and they are the least and they are trapped, right? God, He is pleased when we take His resources and build His kingdom by investing into His values. When I think about the family, God is passionate about the family. I want to um, fight for and protect the sanctity of marriage and the family because this is right near and dear to the very heart of God. Uh, when I think about the church, I want to invest my money to build the church. I want to make sure that my local church has all the resources it needs to do to accomplish the vision that God's given its leaders. I want to give irrationally and generously to all of them. Um, I don't want to just pick one and then go lazy. And I, I really want to live irrationally, generously on each of these things. And so this is how we... Think about Jesus's kingdom values. And I would encourage you to think through through those. Why is the master giving any resources at all? Because he wants his kingdom to grow. So if you have money, stuff, skills, or experiences, why did Jesus give these to you? To hide it under a bushel? Somebody say no. No, thank you. I was waiting for that one. That was so good. That made me so happy. No. Number two, people who do, do something grow God's kingdom. People who do something, oh, pop, sorry, people who do something to grow God's kingdom, please God. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants, they came and they settled accounts with them. This is the judgment, the final judgment. And what appears to happen is that God's lining everybody up. And uh, verse 20 goes on and says, And he who had received the five five talents, he came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. If one talent is $2.1 million, he had 10, and he multiplied it, or five, and he multiplied it by 10, what is that total number? I can't do the math. It's a lot of money. Can we just agree on that one, right? $21 million. Does that feel accurate? Thank you, Joel. Thank you. $21 million. Um, So then here's what happens. His master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over. This is a really funny word. This is supposed to like spark humor in you. You've been faithful over a little. Just shows you the opulence and the wealth of the master. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, so far, you've read this concept of the master and you've probably imported or transferred to him. Maybe he's a money-hungry master. He's just all about his kingdom and he's a little like. What do you find is most valuable to this master? Faithfulness. The money, it seems that it was inconsequential to him. This was a test to see how much this guy was able to steward. Isn't that interesting? The money was never the point. He already has enough. The issue was he gave it to him to test them, to see how much of my resources can I give to you to grow what is most important to me, which is God's kingdom. And then I love this, enter into the joy of your master. Let's look at the second person because we get the same language. He also who had two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents here. I've made two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and, say with me, faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little (laughs) and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Imagine if you got to work for Steve Jobs, a billionaire has more than he ever knew what to do with, and you're working for him, and there's something inside of you that would just love, if he came up to you and said, "I just I want to tell you something. I'm so proud of you. I love you. You make me happy and I trust you. You are faithful. Like, there's something inside of you that says, if Steve Jobs said that to me in a business context, I'd be like, that's right, I do, right? You go tell people. But it's interesting because there actually is, there is something put inside of the human experience. um, And I wanna share this with you. We are created to thrive when God takes pleasure over us. And I wanna give you an analogy to help you understand this. You all probably know that person whose dad doesn't like their kid, and you probably all know the people who grew up and they never felt loved by their dad. And there is this internal desperation of just wanting so badly to hear those words. It's like we are created to long for it in powerful ways. And in the moment when that dad gives it to the son or the daughter, there is this wave of satisfaction and joy and relief, son, daughter, I am proud of you. I trust you, you are faithful, I love you. We are created to long for this. And when, when the master, when Jesus looks at them on the day of judgment and says, I am so proud of you, you are faithful. That feeling of approval from your dad times it by a million and it will wash over you and it will be one of the most satisfying experiences you can imagine enter into the joy of your master. So again, I know some of you come from really damaged backgrounds in church. I get that. And some of you are just convinced pastors just want our money and blah, 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 blah. And I I get it. I see it. I watch what happens in this world. And literally, if if I could like plead with you, go to your hole, dig up your talents and grow God's kingdom because nothing, nothing will be more better or worth it. This is who you were made to be. And yet we dig them, we put them into a hole, we walk away, we cross our fingers, hoping it's all gonna be all right. And so I am so passionate about people serving not just once a month every week I'm passionate about people just rationally giving because these are the ways that we grow God's kingdom these are the ways that we do this and it brings life and God sees us and is like yes you're entering into life you're not hoarding you're giving you're planning for the future so you could have more leverage to give and be generous you're teaching your children and the next generation like God's pleasure just washes over us in those moments and we are created to thrive in those moments you're like oh we just want more people to serve no i want you to have the pleasure of God wash over you, and I want you to know what it's like to stand before God and have him look at you and say, I'm proud of you, well done, good and faithful servant. And some of you, you need to get off your rear, and you need to dig up the hole and pull out all the stuff that you've been hoarding, and you have to figure out, how do I grow God's kingdom and not be like this other guy? Now, I want the story to end. That's what I want. I want to say, this is a long enough sermon. We all got the point. Let's go home. But unfortunately, I have to tell you the last part of this. It's very frustrating, but it is real. Point number three, so help me God do something for God's kingdom now. May you not be the third guy in this story. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Mark these words. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, hear the crassness? Here, have what is yours. You have to pay attention here because his view of the master is fundamentally different than the first two guys. That if you view God like an old man sitting in heaven who's really grumpy and he's just out to exact vengeance, right? and you're petrified of God, you're, you're not gonna be able to do the things that God's asked you to do. It's better to dig a hole, throw the stuff in the ground than to fail and experience his wrath. Here's what I think. Uh, I think the master for the first two guys, if they would have gone out, traded the money and lost and came back with nothing, here's what I think the master would have said. I think the master would have said, I'm so thankful that you were willing to take a risk and that you tried. I would rather you fail I'd rather you try and fail than dig a hole, put your stuff, your resources, your talents into the ground and cover them up and walk away. I'd rather you fail big than do nothing. And so this guy is thinking, you know what? I am petrified of the master. And you know what's interesting is what did the master actually want? Did he want more money? No, the master wanted faithfulness. And in his fear, he completely misread what the master wanted and he completely went down the wrong path. He over or underestimated his heart and his values. And here's what we find we find this guy loses big time. Big time. So sad. Verse 26 His master answered him You wicked and slothful servant. Here's what's interesting. How did the man self identify his problem? I was afraid, not so. God pulls back his masquerade, his mask, says, That's cute, that's adorable, you weren't afraid, and you and I both know it. You were lazy and you were slothful. That's it. And that is evil. You did this because you're evil, not because you're afraid. Fear is what you tell people to justify yourself and make yourself feel better. Hear me, this has nothing to do with fear. But his master answered him and said, you wicked and you slothful servant. Okay, you knew. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you, if you were really afraid, here's what you would have done. then you you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and am I coming? I should have received what was my own with interest. No, if you were afraid, you would have taken the safe route, made me interest, and here is where the master is so smart. The master knows this was about laziness. This guy did the least he could possibly do, and he was hoping he'd get rewarded more for doing nothing. Hey, I didn't lose it. And the master calls him on it and says, you're lazy, You're lazy, that's what you are. My fear, my fear for some people is that you are hiding your talents and you've dug a deep hole and you've dug them in them and it has nothing to do with fear. It just has to do with you love you. You've got better things to do with your time. And this is where it gets really scary because this is where the big warning of the text is. Like, there's this big encouragement here, which is like, give irrationally, generously, leave a legacy, like, take care, build God's resources and his kingdom, like, do this thing. But there is this, like, stern warning and you can't escape it. Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. And we're talking millions of dollars at this point, by the way. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. It's it's interesting because if you hide it, if you dig a hole, you put it in there, here's what's going to happen. God is just going to have someone else do what you had the opportunity to do. He's going to give your blessing, your opportunity to somebody else because here's the deal. God's not broke. Like, if you don't do it, it's not like, oh, it's never going to happen. God's entire will for humanity is thwarted, right? It's not the way it works in the math. He's going to get his way, but here's the deal. He will take your opportunities and your blessings, and he will give them to somebody else who's proven themselves to be faithful. That, to me, is so sad. Like, I want to stand before Jesus. And, and believe me, neither of these guys were perfect. I mean, they're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not going to stand before Jesus and he's like, you were perfect. No, Jesus was perfect. But I do want to stand before him and I want him to look at me and say, you did well. I gave you a lot and you handled that well. I gave, I gave you a little bit more and you handled that well. And I just want to say, thank you for being faithful. That's like my dream. Anybody else? And the pleasure of God washes over me. And I'm like, yes, way better than knowing my father's approval. And then here's where it ends. And I think this is, what's, this is where it gets really emotional. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is to show you how very strongly he feels about you and your talents and how strongly he feels if you dig a deep hole, you throw him in there and you cover it up and you masquerade as afraid, but really you're just living for you. Verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place where there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, uh, weeping is clear. We, we, gnashing of teeth is, a, is a, um, something you do when you're extremely angry. I can't believe you do that, right? So some people said, <clears throat> if you took somebody out of hell and you put them in heaven, then um, they would be like so glad to be in God's presence. Oh no, you take somebody out of hell and you put them into heaven and they will gnash their teeth at God in anger. It's a powerful reality. And these guys sit there, the master, the master, I can't believe you do this for me. And so Jesus is trying to teach the disciples look, y'all, we're entering into a new season, a new epoch in history, in light of the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He is coming back, but between that day and this day, you are going to be given his resources, and you have a job. Your job is to build his kingdom. And then one of the themes we see all throughout scripture is that moms and dads take their children and they hand off the legacy of faith, of faithfulness, of money and finances. And we train the next generation because how are they supposed to know unless the church and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa train them and teach them? So here's what I want to do. I want to close by getting just super practical with you. And uh, I, I want to give you a simple paradigm we've used for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and it is simply this. Uh, the way you hand off a godly legacy is through what you model, through what you teach, and through what you schedule. And I want to give you some just si- like simple tips. tips. And um, some of you kids in the room, you're going to be like, oh, God, please don't let my parents do this to me. But it's going to be great. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we want to build prosperous people who build up God's kingdom, not poverty people, who have no leverage in their life and panic every time life happens to them, right? So um, let's talk about a few things. Number one, what you model. I know this gonna sound crazy, work. Some of you have no capacity to work because of physical issues, I totally get that. Um, hear me, um, I have nothing negative or concerning to say for you, okay? Um, we're talking about normal circumstances in normal life. You guys hear that, we're clear on this? Your kids should get a job. Can somebody give me an amen on this, right? Yeah. You're 16, you get a license, you get a job. But, 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 but. Ah, okay. <laughs> how will they ever function in society if they do not have a boss? Yeah. Anybody? Okay, good. I know kids are like Bleh. So, you'll be fine, you'll live if you don't work now, okay? You're just like hurting your future success. So fine. Um, prioritize regular and generous tithing. Here's my philosophy with kids. Um, so make them give 50% of their income away to church or to other nonprofits. Why? You're like, 50%? Are you crazy? Well, last time I checked, they're not paying a mortgage or insurance or a car payment or for their clothes or for their food or for their health insurance or their deductibles or well, can we go on and on and, on and on and on and on and on and on or every time they grow and their shoes get bigger, you get a new pair, right? They're not paying for any of that, okay? So like 50%. Teach them crazy, irrational generosity. Why? Because if you teach them 50% like when they're kids, they'll probably get down to 10% when they're adults. All <laughs> right? If you teach them 10% when they're adults, they'll do what the average evangelical does, which is 2 to 3.5% per family, right? Which, is, which just shows you the state of, we'll say, poverty thinking in the church and in America. Um, here's what you do. Before they're able to spend a dollar, you build a savings account for them, and you put their money in it, and you don't let them touch it right? You co-sign it, so like you need two signatures to get the money out, right? It's got to be intentional. All the crazy things that adults do, you know, like crazy. We teach them how to do this as kids. And uh, you teach them how to save. You give them goals. You put them on Mint.com. I don't care. Do anything. Like, teach them where their money goes. Show them how to put the basics together. Uh, 11 years old, I had a paper route. I had no idea, but my dad was doing my taxes for me. I had 40 credits uh, by the time I was 19 years old. Like, that was awesome. And uh, teach them how to actually do taxes. These are the things that you model for them and you show them. Uh, you, you model for them how not to go into debt. And if by chance you're in a season of repentance where you're like, I'm gonna do something different, then you show them how to lower your standard of living so that you can accelerate debt payoff. Why? Because debt is evil. It's so hard and it corrupts, it's so sad. The standard of living after our standard of giving, we build our life on generosity and then the rest of what we do is built on, um, we, we live basically after we've determined what we're gonna be generous with. Like These are simple things that we model to help our children and our grandchildren start to do things differently. The deeper you are to the poverty side, by the way, and hear me, I have no condemnation, none. My big desire is for you to take steps the other way. I have no desire to say, you're bad. Everybody who grows up in this country, unless somebody teaches you otherwise, goes down the poverty route, It's just how they think. My desire for you is to pivot. My desire for you is to begin a different trajectory. And sometimes there'll be some of you who actually have to take your kids with you and show them the mistakes you've made so that they will never ever make those mistakes again. Standard of living after standard of giving. Now there's what you model. But if you just model stuff and you don't teach them, will they be able to live it out when they get older? Say no. Saint, it's, this, this is what happens. We say the, for, what the first, first generation assumes, the second neglects, the third rejects. If you assume they're going to get it through osmosis, they will not get it and they will neglect it when they become adults. Now number two is what you teach. You teach them how to work. It doesn't, like, you start mowing lawns. You start doing driveways and shoveling stuff, anything. I mean, you just teach them how to work. You teach them how to budget. You actually open up for them a budget. Again, I'm a raving fan of mint.com because of how helpful and easy it makes this process for adults and kids. Um, You teach them how to prioritize Regular and generous tithing. You actually model for them how to do it. You show them how to write checks or give cash. You do whatever it takes because it is our job to teach them how to function and structure their life so they can be as generous as humanly possible. Submission to government. I mean, I think Illinois is crazy. But you know what? God called me to live here. And I'm going to pay their taxes. Drives me nuts. Anyone else? <laughs> Debt principles, you know? you might find uh, that your kid is in debt. And so you walk with them and you teach them snowball effects. You do all these different things that help them accelerate debt payoff. Standard of living after standard of giving. Your kid says to you, I wanna go buy a new guitar like me. And you say, well, have you given money? Have you saved? Is this leftover? Have you prioritized? Okay, now you can do that. Simple things, right? But really hard to do. But this is why we say, Godly legacies are chosen with intentionality and long-term obedience. Because if we don't hyper-prioritize these things, we'll get distracted. We'll hope by osmosis they catch it. And they'll be fine. But man, we could raise kids who do serious damage to the kingdom of darkness and build up the kingdom of light. Finally, number three, What's your schedule? I schedule in the summers. You get a job. Why? Because it's summer. <laughs> um, budgeting. I schedule times with my kids every October or November to help them budget for the next year. You put these things in your calendar, because if you don't schedule them, what's going to happen? Nothing. Um, I teach them savings. We schedule every month. This is when you put money into your savings. Here's how we do this. We schedule when we do our taxes. Every January 15th or something, we get together with my kids and we Tell them how to do their taxes. We schedule debt payoff. We prioritize um, their play, meaning you play after you give. Like These are fundamentals. And so you have to start with this place where you say, you know what, I'm going to model for my kids. I'm going to make sure my home and my life is under control in these areas to the best of my ability. And I'm going to take them, and I'm going to teach, 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 teach. I'm going to take moments and redeem them, especially about debt, and then I'm going to schedule with them and hold their hand and walk them through these processes. Many of you are like, oh, no. I didn't do that with my kids. Well, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to say you're sorry. It's never too late to connect your kid with a financial counselor. Maybe they don't wanna like meet with you because you're mom and dad. I mean, there's all these weird things that kids have, fine. Um, But we would love the opportunity to help your kids hinge from poverty to building a prosperous life so they can be rich, say no, No, so they can be irrationally and crazy generous. That's the point. That's the point. So if you hear anything today, I hope you hear our heart is to build generosity and to grow your relationship with God. Um, My hope is that you're like the first two guys and not the third. And uh, if there's anything we can do to help you as a church, it'd be our honor to come alongside of you. So let's pray together and we'll celebrate communion. Father, um, first of all, you, you have permitted at least us in this room to live in one of the most unique economic contexts in all of human history. There are some countries where even the idea of doubling wealth is impossible because of corrupt government and and institutions. So God, we don't take for granted um, the unique opportunity we have here. And God, our desire um, is to obey your word, to build your kingdom. And so Lord, we do confess there have been many of us, some of us right now, we have dug deep, deep holes. And we have thrown these amazing opportunities that you have given us deep into those holes, covered them, and we turn our back to them. But God, may today be a day where your Holy Spirit gives us the courage and the conviction to pick up that shovel, to undig them, to pull them out, and to submit them back to you. God, would you give clarity in terms of what next steps you want us to take? God, I pray that any spirit of condemnation or self-loathing that would land on anybody in this room, that your Holy Spirit would just strike it away, but you would move us to action and repentance. Lord, I I think about the just non-action of this third guy and it just infuriated you. God, our desire is um, is to look forward to the future. We can't change the past. And to please you with how we handle these amazing gifts. Uh, that you've given us as stewards. We love you, and um, we pray this all in the great and mighty name of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen.